Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andrew Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. We are on the road in Seattle at ACMG's annual clinical genetics meeting. We're really excited to have the rare opportunity to speak directly with members of the medical genetics community. The timing of this meeting is special as it falls during the first ever Medical Genetics Week, which is April 2nd through 6th. For more information, visit acmg.net. We are recording at ACMG, and I am sitting down with Kim, a genetic counselor. I have a lot of questions for you because I think this is an incredibly important area of expertise. So thank you for being here. Yes, I'm happy to be here. My name is Kim LeBanc. I'm with the Undiagnosed Diseases Network Coordinating Center, which is at Harvard Medical School. We help to coordinate all of the sites in the UDN and care for patients with undiagnosed conditions. As you mentioned, I'm a genetic counselor. I started with the Undiagnosed Diseases Network in 2014 when the project was starting. And for the past few years, I've been able to see it grow and develop and work with collaborators across the United States. So I'm in rare disease. Um, I have a rare disease, lipodystrophy, and we often uh, work with families, uh, as you know, that are undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they end up in the rare disease world because advocacy is really have nowhere else to go. They don't know where to go. Mm -hmm. Can Can you talk to me just a little bit more about what the Undiagnosed Disease Network is and how patients come to you? So as you mentioned, there are many people in the rare community who are undiagnosed, and it's these patients that we are trying to help. Back in 2008, the NIH Undiagnosed Diseases Program started to be a resource for patients searching for answers. At the time, there really wasn't a program like that out there where patients who had been through the gamut of clinical testing could go. In 2013, the NIH Common Fund elected to support the expansion of the program into a network of medical research centers across the country to allow more patients to access these diagnostic services to hopefully find answers, to find a diagnosis, to find a community. So you provide diagnosis services. Mm -hmm. I'm undiagnosed. I am lucky enough to have heard about you. I contact you where do we go from like what what what's the process like? Mm-hmm. Since we are a research study, we can't accept all patients. So there is an application process that is available online or on paper and patients can fill that out themselves or have a healthcare provider fill that out on their behalf or a family member, for example. 
a referral letter from a licensed healthcare provider is necessary in order to submit that application to explain the patient's history, to explain why they may be a good patient to be evaluated by our project. At that time, we usually request the medical records for a patient, and those are reviewed at one of our clinical sites. And then that acceptance decision is made whether or not we feel like the patient may be able to benefit from the diagnostic capabilities that we have in the network. Are you able to share with me what criteria would be one that would allow you to work with a patient? Mm -hmm. The types of patients that we see are patients who have been to usually many different doctors, many different medical centers trying to find answers. And there are some findings on testing, but the healthcare providers haven't been able to put together those pieces to figure out what's causing those symptoms. So those are the types of patients that we usually end up accepting into the project. So really someone who has gone through a lot of appropriate steps and Mm -hmm. still not found anything. So they get accepted. And what's the next step? If they're accepted, we work with the patient or family to arrange travel to one of our medical centers. The UDN has in-person evaluations. They will travel to one of our clinical sites to be seen by multiple different specialists and tests and procedures are done at that time. So I would say the first step after acceptance would be organizing that clinical visit. And how many sites do you have? I think you said you had a few. Yes. In the first phase of the project, we had seven clinical sites, and we just expanded to 12 clinical sites in 2018. Not all of those sites are accepting applications yet, but we're hoping that later this year, all of those 12 sites will be able to see patients. That should really help ease some of the travel burden, Mm -hmm, right? Exactly, yes. We are hoping that patients won't have to go across the country to be seen by one of the UDN sites, that there will be places that are a little bit closer for some of the patients. And in that in-person visit, what I, I'm assuming you collect some blood. Mm-hmm. We do collect blood. We usually collect other samples too, like okay. urine, for example, skin biopsies, um, other procedures like MRIs may be done based on what the patient may have done in the recent months. And do you have, is it an age issue or is it from zero to 170. I mean, <laughs> yes, we your... we have a wide age range. We accept both children and adults okay. into the program. Great. Uh, now, from my experience, and I am sure that uh, from your experience, there's a lot of additional challenges um, for patients who have gone undiagnosed or who are really seeking a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. It means it can be psychologically very concerning. Mm-hmm. Do, how do you work with individuals like that? Do you have tools or, or resources um, for them or that you recommend? Mm-hmm. So we we do try to meet patients and families where they are at the time. We have genetic counselors at all of the clinical sites and can work with social workers as well at these major medical centers. So relying on those resources as well. Our Duke clinical site too is looking more into the psychosocial experience of the patients and families to better understand what challenges they're facing so that we can hopefully better address their needs in the future. I love that uh, term, meet patients where they are. Um, we use that in in my foundation as, as we try because, it, I mean, not any circumstance is duplicate exactly mm-hmm. from the other, right? 
and some people um, are really excited to have a diagnosis and other people are really devastated or, or I mean, just even be in that, you know, mm-hmm. odyssey of looking for a diagnosis. So. And it may not be what they expect either. They may be very hopeful when they come in. And then when, if they do get a diagnosis and it's delivered, it may not be either what they were expecting or they may not react how they thought they would. Yeah, exactly. How many, statistically, do you, can you say how many people end up getting diagnosed through your organization through UDN? Mm-hmm. It's hard to say because some of these diagnoses take many years and mm-hmm. we evaluate patients, but the more we learn in genetics, the more we discover over time. So far, we've made about 200, over 200 diagnoses, which we are thrilled about, but we have a far way to go as well since we've evaluated many more patients than that. So as technology advances, do you ever rerun genetics? In some cases, the sequence is rerun. In other cases, we try to reanalyze the data from what was sequenced initially. Okay. So it really depends on the situation and what the technology looked like when that testing was originally done. So as a genetic counselor, that is really, I mean, you have a lot of tools and, and are, are clearly very skilled at working with individuals who are undiagnosed. What would you advise to uh, another genetic counselor who doesn't work in undiagnosed as often or that that doesn't have the tools to meet patients where they are? Like mm-hmm. what's what's your best advice to them? I would say be open, be open to learning about these new conditions, be open to learning about each patient and family's situation in the UDN, really each patient is unique, both in terms of their genetic makeup as well as their previous experience. So come in with that interest in learning, both about the genetics as well as the patient and family that you're working with. And what other tools uh, do you use when you are actually giving an individual a diagnosis or a family a diagnosis? There are some resources online. You can print out materials for a family. Other people may use imagery, and it really depends on who is giving that diagnosis, what tools they find useful in communicating the diagnosis, as well as what you think the family may be receptive to. There may be some families who want the paper that was published about the condition. There may be other families that just want a few bullet points, a few notes. Uh, Whenever there is a support group or some advocacy organization out there that the patient can be involved in, we give that information as well. That's great. Uh, I mentioned to you um, before we started this conversation today that um, I'm familiar with RUN, Rare Mm -hmm. Undiagnosed Network. Mm -hmm. And I think you've worked with them or partnered with them a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. They are a wonderful organization. And for those families who are interested in getting more involved in the community and advocacy work afterwards, they are a group that we refer patients to. We've also worked with Gina, who leads run in UDN activities, and she has been wonderful in advising us as well. So I would say they are an advocacy arm, and we are looking for the diagnosis. Yeah, that's a really good partner. Mm-hmm. an incredible partnership. And I think that the theme in Rare is we always see greater success when we see partners mm-hmm. between, gen, uh, you know, the geneticists and the clinicians. And 
um, also types, different types of geneticists I'm learning. I really, um, I honestly kind of thought if you were a geneticist, you just ran all the tests. But <laughs> I've discovered today that that is not the case at all. You mm-hmm. run different, some geneticists work with some types of tests versus others. Um, another organization I've learned a lot about recently that brings up a topic I'm curious about is um, that there's an organization called Remember the Girls focused on um, girls who have a recessive gene and they're learning that recessive genes in in her disease state, but then also in other disease states, we used to kind of think, oh, if it's recessive and you're a carrier, no big deal, except that you could pass it on, but you yourself are fine. Um, but now the, we're learning more, we're finding that actually sometimes carriers can have some symptoms. Mm-hmm. Do you address that as a genetic counselor, carriers versus non-carriers, dominant versus recessive? Mm-hmm. Those are all areas that we cover and also how the results that we that we may be giving one of the UDM participants, how those results could impact family members too and that importance of family communication and having those family members seek genetic counseling if they are interested in learning more. And will you see them or talk with them? It will depend on the situation where the family members may be. They may be closer to another academic medical center and feel like it's more appropriate to see genetic counselors or geneticists in that area. So it it really depends on the family situation. So Kim, going back to an individual who's in your network and you find a diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, can you expand on kind of how you all might tell the family um, and, and, and the kind of tools that you just as a, you know, policy best practices in really working with a family? Mm-hmm. So the communication of a diagnosis somewhat depends on the timing for diagnoses that are identified while the patient is at one of the medical centers. That diagnosis would be communicated in person. There is a wrap-up visit at the end of the UDN evaluation, which is usually a few days long, and that's when a diagnosis may be communicated. It may be communicated at the beginning of that week if the diagnosis was discovered before the in-person evaluation. And what that session looks like is usually meeting with a doctor and a genetic counselor if the diagnosis is genetic, going over what that diagnosis is, what it means, and providing any resources that may be available that may be printing out information from the internet for some of the new conditions that we diagnose. There is hardly any information out there, so it may be creating some sheets of information or visual representations for the family to take home. In other situations, it may be the publication of that diagnosis. And similar information would be communicated if the diagnosis is discovered, let's say, a year after the in-person evaluation. But at that time, the family may not be brought back to the site if they live far away. Exactly. So it may be communicated over the phone or through a video call. Do any of your newly diagnosed um, families then get seen at NIH? Some of them do if there's a protocol there that's open. 
in a lot of the cases I mentioned, there may not be much known about the condition. So we will try to connect patients with researchers whenever possible. We do have research within the network. We have model organism screening centers that can follow up on variants that are identified through sequencing, but we do try to connect families with researchers outside of the network if we know there is someone, for example, the NIH or elsewhere that may be focused on that condition. And what is, I mean, this it's kind of incredibly difficult, um, so I don't envy you, but really how do you talk to a family when you don't find anything? It Again, depends on what work we may be doing. At the end of the in-person evaluation, for most patients, we don't have an answer yet. For these conditions that are incredibly rare, it takes providers and researchers working together to investigate what the cause may be. And we would communicate if research studies are still ongoing and we think there may be positive results there. For others, we communicate that we look back at the data over time and will continue to look into the samples and data that we collected during the in-person evaluation to find answers for them, but also encourage them to follow up with their home provider and communicate updates to us over time that we're interested in working with their home team to figure out what's going on in the future. In Rare and Common, we often talk with patients who are undiagnosed and uh, get their perspective of what a diagnosis might mean for them. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, um, how how would you guess? And I'm asking you to put your, yourself in someone else's shoes, but mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it requires a kind of empathy for you um, when you're working with individuals. What do you think a diagnosis means for some of these families? I think for a lot of families, it is helpful just to know what is going on. By not knowing what's causing symptoms, you can't look for a treatment. You can't fund research. You can't form an advocacy group. You can for undiagnosed diseases in general, but you aren't targeting the problem. And I think that provides a lot of hope for people that they can do something, that there is an action that they can take when you're undiagnosed, it's hard to know what the next step is. Yeah. I think that you you hit the word when you said hope. I think in rare, we hear over and over and over hope, but without any sense of direction, it's hard to know what to be hopeful for, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have, that's a that's a big, empty room that needs to be filled with hope that I think is is really challenging in addition to just managing the day-to-day problems of whatever's happening, mm-hmm. how the disease is manifesting, and you still don't really know where, what it is. Mm-hmm. Right? And, if, and if it's a known condition, you may have more information about what may happen in the future. For some of these new conditions, that uncertainty still exists, but by having a name of a known condition, you can potentially eliminate some unnecessary testing because you have a better idea of what may happen in the future. And so I think we all will continue to work together. I mean, it's, it's hard to have these conversations about undiagnosed because I have a diagnosis. So I can talk about rare, but my, I, 
I just don't have that experience of not having a diagnosis. Now, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 37 years old. So I certainly can say, look, I lived my entire life without having any idea what was going on. So mm-hmm. I have a little bit of, but I try not to really say, I don't I don't know what it feels like because I have this and I'm an advocate for lipodystrophy. So it's a little easier for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but one another area that is is very fascinating to me. I heard a term yesterday on the floor of ACMG, um, dominant guilt, and I knew exactly what the the geneticist meant, and that was um, the person who passes on a dominant gene. Um, and I thought that was fascinating, mm-hmm. just that term. Uh, how how as a genetic counselor do you work? with families if there's that kind of um, real struggle. Mm -hmm. As we talked about before, with genetic counseling, it's so important to meet the patient and family where they're at and dig more into what is this guilt you're feeling, what's causing it, and how can you manage it? Because in there was a talk earlier today that was talking about being a carrier and despite the fact that we know that we all have genetic mutations or something could happen by chance that's not genetic related that we may cause and we have to deal with that guilt. We know it's not a unique experience, but when you are feeling that guilt, it does feel isolating and it does feel like you are the only one dealing with that. And I think it's less about normalizing it and more trying to figure out how can you live with that guilt and what may help to relieve that guilt for you as a person. Yeah. I, I know from my dad's perspective, he doesn't like to talk about lipodystrophy very much. He has the he has it and mm-hmm. he passed it to me and he feels really guilty. I, I don't want him to feel any guilt. He had no idea. I mean, it was there, but I can't alleviate mm-hmm. that for him. That's just something that he'll have to work through. And so mm-hmm. I, would, I, I imagine that that's a really big issue for families. And as we know, when you're looking for a diagnosis, it's not just about the individual. It's about the whole family, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Well, I'm thankful for individuals like you. I think that, um, well, so do you see more genetic counselors or less genetic counselors than we used to have? I think there are more genetic counselors than there used to be. The training programs, it seems like most of them are growing in size. So I think there will continue to be growth in the profession over time. There is a need and I think there will continue to be more of a need in the future. So I hope that the programs and the genetic counseling field can continue to grow. I think there's a great need, particularly if everyone can work together, Mm -hmm. because I think it's a huge part of the puzzle um, that often falls onto if if individuals haven't seen a genetic counselor, it falls onto the advocacy to try and pick up where you know that information, that gap of information. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the skill set or the training. I mean, I, I can learn as much as I can, but um, your perspective versus my perspective, I'm sure we do a much job 
better job together than, mm-hmm. than separately. Exactly. And even with the care team, everyone has their unique skills and the system works best if everyone can work together and be able to utilize their unique skills in the care of patients with these rare and undiagnosed conditions. So we've made a lot of advancements uh, in the last just few years, right? In genetic testing and really the counseling phase of that, right? Because as our tests get uh, more advanced and complicated, that probably progresses the -hmm. need for what you all need to understand and and share. Um, Those advancements have happened fast. What, What do you see for us in the next five to 10 years in genetics? What are you hopeful for? I'm hopeful that more patients will be able to access the genetic testing that they need and that we will have improved capabilities to analyze all of the data that we may be collecting and have data from diverse groups of patients as well, because that will help us in the interpretation of some of this data, which will be necessary to diagnose patients. But I'm forever grateful for the work that you do as someone, uh, again, with a lot of friends uh, in in rare disease without a diagnosis. Um, So I I absolutely understand the importance. And I also really appreciate your time because there's a lot of information here at ACMG. And I'm sure that you are looking forward to going to learn more about it. But it was great to learn more about you. Thanks, Kim. (laughs) Well, thank you. It was great to talk to you today. This episode was recorded live at the 2019 American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics Annual Clinical Genetics Meeting in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click. Listen. Feel. Feel.